Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Joseph Frankel, podiatrist and academic of Heal Me Podiatry. Yes. We are talking about feet today, Uh, something that we haven't covered on the podcast, but is so incredibly important because our feet get us through our day, they take us on our journeys, and how much attention do we really give to them? And yes, the skin on our feet is connected to the skin on the rest of our body, and it is important for our health to ensure that we're looking after our footsies. So I will give you a little bit of a content warning for those that may be a little bit averted to feet and talking about feet. Uh, However, Joseph is going to be sharing all the details about how to care for, how to prevent, and how to treat many, many foot ailments. Joseph is a highly qualified health professional having completed both an undergrad Bachelor of Podiatry and a Master of Science with specialty in wound healing and tissue repair, as well as um, postgraduate dermatology studies. With over 15 years' experience, Joseph has worked extensively across private practices and hospitals, and his caring and thorough approach ensures his patients' foot concerns are managed appropriately and individually. In addition to his clinical work, he holds academic positions at several universities where he provides clinical supervision and lectures. He also has regular speaking engagements and mentors podiatry graduates. Joseph shares how his journey into podiatry changed the perspective of foot dermatology and the importance of a podiatrist role in the management of skin conditions. I started by asking Joseph what he thought was the biggest misconception about podiatry. A lot of people think of their podiatrist mostly as someone who does a lot of routine stuff. So come in, get your corn cut out or fix up your callus or cut your nails. But because we deal with dermatological conditions on a regular basis, we can offer treatments and insights into the management and the cure of a lot of common skin conditions, whether it's warts, whether it's fungal nails, and even extending out to things like eczema and psoriasis, which can present in feet. So your local podiatrist can offer a number of different ways to fix common problems that might be a pain in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> nice dad joke there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Joseph, tell us about your career and how you got to be doing the work that you're doing today. So originally I I didn't start out uh, doing podiatry. Originally I started out doing engineering and I wasn't hundred percent sure what I wanted to do after um, a semester of engineering. So I looked into a few different career paths and being a good mummy's boy, my mum suggested that I look into podiatry, which I did. And I I spent um, a day shadowing a podiatrist and it really got me motivated that podiatry is unique in the sense that we can offer people relief really quickly. 
And I also like the, the diversity within the scope of practice, which encompasses surgery, dermatology, pediatrics, orthopedics, etc. And so career-wise, after about five years of doing private practice podiatry, I felt things were getting a little bit stale within the way I treated. And so I started to look into ways to expand my own practice and, and my own subspecialties. And so I, I did a master's of wound healing through Cardiff University, which was amazing. It was, it's actually within the School of Medicine and within the dermatology department. And an extension of that then eventually became a graduate diploma in general dermatology which coupled with my work that I do both in my private practice as well as at the Skin Health Institute, which is basically a dermatology foundation in Melbourne CBD, I perform a number of, of roles within dermatology and wound healing as well as sort of general podiatry. So um, there's a lot that can happen on the foot and my practice reflects that as well as also some academic work and some teaching. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite busy. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And such a broad kind of network as well even my thoughts of podiatry not knowing much about it to cover so many different aspects and yes you know we are told how important it is to look after our feet because they carry us throughout our lives but i'm not sure if many people actually put that into practice and have seen their local podiatrist unless they have a specific concern but not just thinking about it in general health i guess so what are some of the most common skin conditions that we see affecting the feet? Well, they, as I mentioned earlier, they range between warts, which are quite a common pediatric problem. They actually tend to flare up in winter months, in, in my opinion, and, and we can get to that a little bit later. Fungus of all varieties, whether that's nail fungus or skin fungus, colloquially, I hope I said that colloquially, commonly known as athlete's foot. Cracked heels is really common, particularly in the lead up to summer. And as well as chronic skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis can have what we call a palmo-plantar presentation, which means it's on the sole and it's on the palm, and just sort of general maintenance. So as we get older, our skin texture changes, our nail texture changes, and, and also arthritis and other general sort of medical conditions restrict um, a person's ability to self-care. So there's a whole swathe of skin conditions that we see, but also we do have a role in the detection and screening of cancers as well, because we're often the first people to spot them. When it comes to people's feet in general, Often it's a case of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, back when I was an undergraduate, uh, many potential girlfriends were turned off by the fact that I was going to look at feet for the rest of their life because <laughs> many people, you know, oh, I can't stand my feet. I don't like feet, etc. So often people will come in and say, I'm so embarrassed with my foot condition, but we've genuinely seen it all. Nothing, nothing phases a podiatrist when it comes to foot, uh, foot issues. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of those most common types of conditions and go through some of the causes, like why do they occur? Yeah, excellent question. So starting with warts, warts are pretty common this time of year being winter, simply because warts are a, are a viral infection that when a person an individual, generally a kid, comes into contact with another wart sufferer, it's transmitted that way. And so because warts can remain dormant for up to a year or two, typically in winter when the weather's a bit colder and our immune function's a bit lower, out comes this lumpy bit of skin. It's, we mostly see it on the plantar surface of the foot, so that's the sole. And they can range from being small and completely painless to being big and nasty and painful. 
Interestingly, the treatment for it, particularly in pediatric cases, actually doesn't need to involve anything as 50% of pediatric warts clear within six months, 90% of pediatric, uh, pediatric warts clear within 12 months. So aside from leaving it well alone and just monitoring it, there's a number of non-invasive treatments we can try, ranging from even natural treatments like garlic and lemon oil and banana skins. I kid you not, I, I actually offer that to my patients. I say, wow. you know, we, can, we can apply fruit and vegetables. And that can be effective all the way through to some of the more invasive methods, which we mostly reserve for calcitrin chronic cases that have been there for two plus years in adults that can cope with the idea of, you know, pain. Fungus is also incredibly common. It's arguably the most common infection in the world. Something like 70% of the shod shoe-wearing Western population carries some level of either clinical or subclinical fungus on their feet. So shoes and fungus are best friends, and that can manifest in a number of ways, not just in the skin, but typically in the manifestations of the nails. So nail funguses are the ones that require treatment in a variety of ways. And again, most of those treatments are not painful. However, the treatment of fungus, because it's so ubiquitous and because it's so common and because it's so, it has such an affinity for the shoe-wearing individual and the foot environment within a shoe, the key is the length of treatment when it comes to treating, whether it's your fungal nail or your fungal skin infection. So generally speaking, the longer you treat it, the more effective it's going to be. So those are probably the two most common infections I see. But cracked heels, I often see a lot of patients coming in with cracked heels. And linking that back to fungal infections, sometimes the cause of cracked heels is actually a fungal infection. And that's why it's really important seeing your podiatrist to understand whether or not the driver for your dry skin condition, whether it's cracked heels, whether it's callus, whether it's a corn, whether the driver for that condition is actually an infection. Because once we treat the infection, almost always those dry and hard and cracked skin conditions get better. So that's it's, really interesting. Yeah. So what, what happens in these types of presentations when there is cracked heel and a fungus infection, is it mm. something to do with that fungus attacking the skin barrier function? Effectively. Yeah. So getting back to the idea of the foot being in an unnatural environment, being shod, wearing a shoe, it creates changes to the way the tissue works. So here's a statistic for you. The foot is the sweatiest part of the entire body. The eccrine sweat glands, which produce sweat and also are responsible for the classic foot smell, <laughs> perhaps. They're the highest concentration. Lucky this is a podcast. <laughs> <That's and right>. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah, absolutely. Just use your imagination out there. So they have, they have a really high concentration in the foot, meaning that every time we sweat and the foot cannot evaporate, the skin can't evaporate, the barrier function changes. And so you get this macerated wet environment, which breeds fungus really easily. And so fungus, uh, the technical term is dermatophytosis. They live almost exclusively on the epidermis, which is the outer skin layer. So if you've got a, a, a sweaty, dysfunctional outer skin layer, it's a perfect breeding ground for the fungus. And so the result of that is that it gradually starts to eat away, quite literally, some of the tissues. And because there's a number of different species of, of fungi that can infect the foot, some of the presentations result in what we call a moccasin or a hyperkeratotic tinea pedis. So there's, there's interdigital tinea pedis, which means that there's a fungal infection that's in between the toes. 
And there's also more of a heel arch ball of the foot distribution, which can be a hyperkeratotic tinea pedis. There's also another version, which is called vesicular tinea pedis, which is like literally little, little blisters and pimples. Sometimes they're fun to pop, but that can actually perpetuate the infection and spread it. And so linking that back to the original etiology, the original cause of dermatophytosis of foot fungus, if we can change the local environment with some really basic tips, and for those listening out there, this is the number one pro tip that you can take out of this podcast is wash your feet well. Most of the time, we don't do a great job, myself included. I'm raising my hand. You can't see it on the podcast, but the better we wash our feet, the better our barrier function and the better the local environment is in terms of protecting the skin. So the most practical way to do that is to pick up each foot in the shower and wash each foot for 20 seconds. They say that it's roughly the equivalent of singing happy birthday, I think. Or as I heard recently, also the chorus to Hit Me Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. So So we're all really familiar with washing our hands a lot more regularly this year, 2020. And I've seen lots of songs that are the equivalent of the 20 seconds. (laughs) So we just have to do the same, but for our feet. So just Per, per foot as well. So it's, so, so it's really 40 seconds and focus on every part of the foot in between the toes, on top of the foot, the arch, the heel, around the nails. The cleaner it is, the less likely you are to develop an infection. And even if you have an active infection, the, the easier it will be to treat it. Fungus can only live in a dead environment. So the simple act of washing your hands actually is a form of exfoliation. So that's why it's worthwhile giving them a wash, a good wash. (laughs) And this might seem silly, but should we be using our hands? Should we be using a a foot brush? Should we be using, what kind of cleanser should we be using? A a body wash or or something more specific to the feet? It's an excellent question. And sometimes it depends on the skin condition. If a person's suffering from really smelly feet, that's often related to a, a mild bacterial infection. And sometimes that really sweaty feet can lead to other issues. But most of the time, it doesn't matter too much what you use. In a general sense, it's always best to use a low pH soap, which no doubt you've probably covered on this program. But low pH soap brands include QV, Cetaphil, CeraVe, Sebamed. But there is some evidence to say that an antibacterial soap would be more effective. But in terms of whether or not you should use your hands compared to a loofah, or or of that nature, it doesn't really matter too much because fungal infections of the hands, although they're not impossible, they're pretty rare. So if you were to use your hand, just wash your hand afterwards, simply. And what about after we get out of the shower? Yes. So that's an excellent question. Fungi has an affinity, not just for the foot, but for other areas of the body, whether that's the groin or the armpit. So a good idea would be to dry your feet separately. So that would involve basically, if possible, getting a separate towel specific for your feet that's dry and clean and drying your feet separate to the rest of your body. Or one can dry themselves head to toe and not the other way around. They say that as well when it comes to someone who's got an active fungal infection, be careful when you put your undergarments on first thing in the morning so as not to spread it to other areas of your body. But (laughs) yeah, I know it it really depends on how far you want to take the, the, the treatment of fungal infections, but Clean and dry is, is really the simplest tips I can give you without sort of making yourself a bit too much of a germaphobe. 
Because the other thing to, to remember is that commensals, which are sort of native skin microbes, fungi and, and yeasts and molds, they're all within that category. So it's, it's very difficult to completely eradicate them. And interestingly, commensals actually do have a protective function on the skin anyway. So it's a bit like the gut microbiome. You don't want to kill everything. You just want to find that balance. And so part of finding that balance is washing and drying your feet well. I have been known, especially on a cold morning, to actually use a hairdryer to dry my feet and it just feels wonderfully warm as well when, when the room is freezing. Is that a good way to perhaps dry your feet for someone that might not be able to reach between their toes? That's actually an excellent, excellent suggestion. And yeah, that if, if you've got a hairdryer on hand, go for it. Just as long as you're not burning your foot, absolutely go for it. Give it, give it a bit of a blast and focus mostly if you're going to use it in between your toes. That's where most fungi starts. So if you can keep the interdigital area as dry as possible with a, a short blast of your hairdryer, go for it. So what are some of these treatments? So we've spoken about warts, fungus, cracked heels, corns, and also I guess some of the causes as well. What are the treatments from least invasive to most invasive? So it depends on the condition, but starting with warts, as I mentioned before, fruit and vegetables, if, if we, um, beyond that, if we start going invasive, we start talking about surgery or liquid nitrogen, which we classify as cryotherapy. There's also chemical agents that we can use, which either peel or cause blistering. And the good news is most of them are relatively painless, probably with the exception of surgery and liquid nitrogen. Most war treatments are, are pretty pain-free. In terms of hyperkeratotic disorders, which would include corns, calluses, and cracked heels, most of the time that's a combination of either something we call debridement, which basically is the fancy term for we scrape it away, and that's also almost always uh, painless. And we like to use moisturizers and occasionally even keratolytics. Keratolytics are heel balms and things like that that contain agents like lactic acid and alpha hydroxy acid and urea. And those help peel off um, dead parts of the skin. And they actually also restore the skin's natural barrier. I'm not sure whether you've covered this in previous programs, but there's something called natural moisturizing factors. And so contained within the skin, there's a number of components, lactic acid and urea among them. So when a person moisturizes regularly, it almost sort of upregulates and internalizes the amount of moisture that's produced. And then getting into fungal infections, that's a little bit more involved because we can treat it in a number of ways. But what we know when it comes to chronic fungal infections is that taking a polytherapeutic multifactorial approach is best. So to simplify that, it means if we can hit your fungal nail or skin infection with two or three or four modalities, including topical creams and paints, tablets on occasion as well, which you can get through your GP or your, or your dermatologist, podiatric treatment, which typically involves cutting or filing down nails or scraping away dead skin, as well as laser and other electrotherapies, light therapy amongst them. So the more we can hit it with, and if we can hit it with those, uh, treat it, I should, shouldn't use the word hit, and if we can treat it with those modalities for a, a period of, in skin, uh, for skin fungus, we're talking probably two to three months minimum, and for nail fungus, six months minimum. Sounds like a long time, but the problem is nails, toenails grow slowly. And so for the bottom of the toenail to grow out healthily takes roughly six months in most cases. So 
often people have, have tried treatments, whether it's oral or whether it's laser and, and they haven't found success. Part of the reason is because they either haven't treated it with enough modalities or for um, enough duration. So six months is, is a drop in the ocean, um, particularly in a year like 2020. So <laughs> if you can treat it for long enough and with enough modalities, you should have success. Yeah. Okay. And we did actually speak in our um, prior to this recording about laser specifically for the treatment of nail fungus, because we are seeing this type of treatment popping up at all types of places, not just in podiatry clinics, but also, I guess, laser clinics as well, because they're thinking, well, I've got this laser and it is the correct wavelength. We can start treating um, nail fungus and things like that. So you did mention it a little briefly, but why isn't this always successful? So getting back to the idea of the polytherapeutic approach, it's necessary because fungus has such an affinity for dead tissue. And, and what's interesting about the nail unit, if you think about it as, as an anatomical entity, is the bit that you see, the bit on top called the nail plate, is actually dead. Um, and because it's dead and contains dead tissue, uh, essentially, the fungi can live in that environment indefinitely. And the problem with lasers are is they either don't get deep enough or they don't break down that fungal colony, which we refer to in, in science as a biofilm. So a, a similar analogy would be when one goes to the dentist and they get the rubbish scraped off the bottom of their teeth, that's a biofilm and that's a biofilm of bacteria and other matter. So now fungus is, is almost exactly the same and chronic cases of nail fungus require biofilm removal either chemically or manually and that's where a podiatrist is really handy handy for your foot and so that's why laser doesn't always do the job and so if you can treat that by physically removing that biofilm by physically removing the visible fungus that's there and then using a laser it can be much more effective so on its own it's not terrific but with other things it really increases the likelihood of success. You mentioned that you sometimes use chemical type agents. So would this be things like urea or something that's more traditionally used on skin, but perhaps in a higher percentage? Absolutely. So keratolizing agents, so things that break down skin proteins and nail proteins like urea and like salicylic acid can be very effective in removing fungi from nails and from skin. The percentage required for nail removal and chemical debridement with urea, we're talking 40%. So you, you normally can't get that from a chemist unless it's as part of a specific fungal nail treatment set like Caniston. And that's what's advantageous about something like Caniston is that the, the first phase is actual breakdown of the biofilm, which means that all of your other methods are much more effective. So if you're a bit squeamish or if you can't get to your local podiatrist, and you don't like the idea of having your toenail scraped, then something like that is a really good initial phase. Salicylic acid, it, it's a little bit tricky because it sort of behaves different. I've, I've noticed this is somewhat anecdotal. It behaves differently in different people. Some people have a terrific reaction and some people it's almost like nothing worked. So urea is probably the most consistent of all of the keratolytics we have in the treatment of nail fungus. Yeah. Mm, interesting. I wonder if it's got anything to do with the amount of sebum that's produced on that person's skin. Likely, likely. Yeah. Now, in regards to melanoma, skin cancer in feet, 
we do know, and this might be news for some people, that just because you get sunburnt on your shoulders doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get a melanoma on your shoulders. It might occur somewhere else on your body. And you have, Joseph, seen a number of melanomas and skin cancers of the feet, and you have done additional study post your podiatry study on skin cancer. Talk to us about some of the causes, symptoms in melanoma and skin cancer of the feet and what to look for. Yeah, great question. And definitely um, a topical area, given the fact that, you know, feet, like we mentioned before, are out of sight, out of mind. Melanomas don't present in the feet, just in the skin. Melanoma of the nail unit are actually also not unheard of. In terms of commonality, there are typical spots and locations for melanomas and, and, and the feet aren't, aren't the most typical, but most of the time it's about looking for things that don't look like they belong. So we use a mnemonic within podiatry circles called cubed, which was developed by a wonderful podiatrist in Britain called uh, Dr. Ivan Bristow. And basically I'll, and, and I'll, I'll read out what each letter stands for in cubed. So we're talking about colored lesions where any part of the skin is not skin color, which is typical of melanoma. So multiple colors an uncertain diagnosis. So if it doesn't look like a mole, doesn't look like a corn, doesn't look like a wart, that's a bit funny. If it's bleeding, so you see a lot of bleeding where things normally wouldn't bleed. Um, enlargement or deterioration, so something ulcerates and a delay in healing. So if you see any of those two out of five, it's cause for referral and, and investigation. I'll never forget the first melanoma patient I saw was a melanoma of the nail unit. What was interesting was he'd actually linked it to stubbing his toe, but it was, it was a wound underneath the toenail that just never quite got better despite all of our treatments. So we referred him off and um, eventually he ended up losing his toe. Thankfully he's still alive and well, but it's amazing how sometimes someone who you stub their toe, you know, that will be the precursor for them getting a referral. So I think a really valuable component of skin cancer detection these days is our mobile phones, which we seem to be tethered to. So what I tell my patients quite often is if you've got something, and this is not just for cancer, this is for any lesion. If you've got any skin lesion or any skin condition that doesn't look quite normal, take a photo of it once every couple of weeks. And then when you finally do get to see your podiatrist, your GP, your specialist, bring in the slideshow and say, this is what it looked like two months ago. This is what it looked like one month ago. This is what it looks like today. Because what we know about cancers are that the longitudinal pattern of them and, and the way they develop is, is very unique. Everyone has a different history with it. And some things can start off being completely benign and then become cancerous. So it's worthwhile just looking at things that don't, that look out of place and just getting a checkup. I think that's really the simplest advice. That's really good advice, especially because we know that our toenails grow so slowly. So if we have perhaps stubbed our toe, we're not necessarily going to remember how long it's taken for it to start growing out. So at least if you're taking images once a month or so, you can see, well, yes, it is starting to grow out or no, it's not. And if it isn't growing out, then it may be something more sinister. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really interested just to go back into immune conditions you mentioned earlier that warts can lay dormant and then maybe when our immune is compromised that then they will start to develop on on our feet or different areas of our body do we see more 
foot conditions in immune compromised patients? It's a really good question. Yes, mostly. I mean, particularly if you think about psoriasis and how psoriasis is an, is an autoimmune condition. So we see variations of, of psoriasis linked in with, with immune function, as well as if you think about diabetes and its effect on sort of the general immune function, we know that diabetics are much more susceptible to fungal infections and cellulitis and bacterial infections and things like that. So there, the, um, off the top of my head, I can't think of a specific immune condition that has a specific podiatric manifestation, but more to the point, if you're a person who's immunocompromised and you're having some sort of foot trouble, it's generally a good idea to go see a podiatrist either annually or twice annually for a checkup and for a tidy up simply because we understand a person's general health and how their immune function and, and their, and their sort of general systemic function can manifest in the skin, but also the treatments we offer are all completely hygienic, meaning that the likelihood of an infection in an immunized, in an immunocompromised individual is much lower. So, yeah. Something that I think is important to cover as well, not just immune compromised patients, but say, for example, someone that might experience lymphedema or even lipedema. And typically this may have occurred due to a cancer diagnosis or node dissection, something like that. So they may previously have been having monthly visits to their salon, getting pedicures, manicures, and things like this. What do you tell your patients that may have newly developed lymphedema or lipedema mm. in terms of how to care and some of the lifestyle changes that they need to make in order to keep their feet healthy? So it's linked previously into the sort of universal skin principles of, you know, keeping things clean and dry and hydrated and monitoring. But you're quite right in the sense that getting things checked out regularly from a podiatrist, from their GP is really important. And lymphedema can be devastating and really tricky and challenging. Um, there are some podiatrists that have a sort of subspecialty training. I'm not one of them I'm in lymphedema management. And it's more than just compression therapy and massage. It's really understanding the nature of the, of the condition itself. So we know that just based on tissue dynamics and hemodynamics, so the way skin behaves and the way um, circulation and fluid behaves, that um, lymphedema and just general edematous conditions are, are at much greater risk of infections from simple things like trauma, you know, like even nicking yourself, you know, on, on the side of your bed or, you know, shaving too hard. <laughs> Although most edematous patients don't have that much leg hair to be concerned about, but it's about being careful. It's about understanding what can happen and, and being proactive when it comes to any chronic condition, proactivity is much more important. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So keep on top of things and things won't turn out badly. Mm. And would you suggest things such as avoiding cutting of cuticles and things like that? That's a really good question just in general. So one of my students asked me this last week because I'm fortunate enough to teach dermatology at an undergraduate level. And she asked, what's the difference between the cuticle and the epinicium, which effectively they're the same, just FYI, in case you wanted to know. But the cuticle is actually a, um, it's a sealant around the base of the nail. So when the cuticle is cut, it's a portal for many infections, not just fungal infections, but, but bacterial infections as well. So we know that diabetics, um, people that have edematous conditions, they're at much greater risk of developing cellulitis. 
So creating a skin barrier is not just about washing and drying and moisturizing. It's also about allowing the natural protective mechanisms in place to do their job. So the cuticle prevents infections. And so if a person is able to leave it alone, and some people love to push them back, shave them down, even though it may not be aesthetically as pleasing, it's there for a reason. And if possible, leave it in place. <laughs> Good advice. And what about if, say, someone has stubbed their toe? The toenail is looking like it is not going to survive and some people just can't help themselves. Is it best to leave the toenail to completely grow out on its own or remove it or see a podiatrist? Um, I know not everyone's going to do that because they might be worried about some kind of surgical intervention, but what's the best advice here? Well, it, it's a tough question to answer because um, the subungual hematoma, as we call it, which means the blood blister under the nail, has lots of manifestations. Sometimes it can be just a simple little bruise that will grow its way out over a two to four month period. Other times it can actually be a fracture. And I've had a number of patients that have stubbed their toe. It's a bit sensitive. And I say, you know what, just to be sure, let's get an x-ray. And before you know it, they've got a fractured phalanx or metatarsal. So I think it's worthwhile getting an opinion if it's hurting beyond sort of day two or day three. And the bruising is really extensive. But in terms of the treatment, you don't necessarily have to remove the toenail. In some cases, it's advisable to remove the toenail in a person who's immunocompromised or in a person who's got a history of infections. Because like we mentioned before, the nail plate is dead. If there's any disruption of that function within the nail plate or the cuticle, and if bacteria gets underneath, that can then lead to um, a much more systemic and serious infection. So the good news is in most cases, it'll either resolve or it will self-amputate, which sounds much more dramatic than it is, but basically the toenail will take itself off one way or another. So again, that's also where smartphones and cameras are very handy. So yeah, take a photo and then as it grows out, take another photo and then invite everybody around for a slideshow of, of your toenail journey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and how would we differentiate between, say, psoriasis and athlete's foot? It's a really good question. Most of the time, what's interesting about fungal infections is they're asymptomatic, which is also, by the way, the case with melanomas, just to jump back to that. Just because something doesn't hurt doesn't mean it's not pathological. But when it comes to skin fungus, most of the time people, when you tell them they've got a fungal infection, they're sort of shocked and they say, but it's not itchy. Psoriasis, by definition, literally means to itch. So psoriasis, most of the time, has a pruritic and itchy component, but it also tends to have more of a, a plaque, which is, uh, which is a, a classic feature of psoriasis because psoriasis is basically accelerated skin cell turnover. A typical skin cell takes anywhere between sort of four to eight weeks. In psoriatic skin, it takes like four to six days. So tinnias and fungal infections, they can be itchy because of a secondary dermatitis component, but they don't normally have a bleeding, irritated plaque. But what's interesting is specifically in regards to nail psoriasis, which can be quite an irritating condition to treat, nail psoriasis can behave like um, nail fungus and vice versa. And sometimes in cases of psoriatic nails, there's also nail fungus concurrently. So you're dealing with, with sort of both things at once. But the good news is with uh, um, those aforementioned treatments for nail fungus, Sorry, um, now psoriasis can also be managed in a lot of ways, but because psoriasis itself 
is a chronic autoimmune condition, it's, it's difficult to hit it as consistently as other um, nail and skin conditions. So the goalposts sort of shift from treatment and resolution to management and maintenance. Podiatry can offer a lot of treatments in terms of how we manage nail psoriasis, including burring it down, which basically we've got these little metal burrs, which sounds worse than they are, but they're attached to a gentle drill, which files down the nail plate, which enables particularly topical medications like um, calcipotriol, which is a vitamin D derivative, which is great for psoriasis, as well as corticosteroids. So things like Advantin and clobetazole and betamethasone and diprazone, all those things. They're a mixture of drug names and trade names in their apologies. But um, basically the thinner the nail plate, the better things can absorb in. I see. Interesting. So we have covered these types of nail conditions, some of the treatments as well. What are the risks for non-treatment of some of these conditions, specifically from your point of view as a wound care specialist and mm. the elderly population? So that's, that, that's actually a really good point. So often the longer you leave nail conditions, the worse they get. Because the nail plate is attached to quite a thin bit of tissue called the nail bed, if the nail bed starts to become chronically damaged, it means that the nail plate will always look and behave a little bit differently. And so what we know is around the nail unit, so the plate and the bed, it's, the tissue is quite thin and sensitive. So I've seen a number of cases of chronic ulcerations around the nail unit simply because people haven't had routine maintenance. So even if there's a case of a person being unable to treat their chronic nail condition, whether it's psoriasis or fungus, because they can't take medication or apply medication, podiatric treatment is wonderful at restoring the structural integrity of that nail unit. So simply by clipping and burring and filing and, you know, really protecting the surrounds of, of, of the toe and, and, and of the nail itself, we can really prevent a lot of problems. So yeah, often it, like I mentioned just before, maintenance and management is way easier than anything else. So yeah, it's worthwhile keeping in mind that a dodgy toenail can lead to a lot of health consequences. And so for someone that doesn't perhaps have any specific foot concerns or conditions, would you still recommend that they visit a podiatrist annually? I think it's a good idea simply to establish what their foot health is doing. And that can just be a really simple routine assessment to look at blood flow, nerve function, biomechanical function, which is a whole separate entity, but to see how someone walks and how someone moves. And also for relevance of, of this podcast, um, a dermatological assessment. So just because someone has an asymptomatic condition doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be assessed and looked at. I think it's worthwhile either on an annual or a every second year basis, just to have a checkup, just to see if everything's working well. Our feet are so neglected and it's so often a case of out of sight, out of mind, that simply by having someone have a detailed look at your foot, we can establish if there's a problem and how we can manage that going forward. And often it's a case of just self-management. I mean, self-management is really easy these days with telehealth, with the internet, with wonderful podcasts like this. And so if we can partner with you in managing your foot complaint, it makes things a lot easier. Mm. And what are some examples that perhaps in teledermatology that 
you may have done prior to 2020, but it might be something that you're incorporating more now. Yeah. What are some types of the things that you can incorporate with teledermatology and podiatry or foot health? Yeah. So when it comes to, particularly when it comes to pediatric warts, because, you know, kids are a bit afraid of, of going in to see their doctor or their podiatrist or whoever, I often get their parents, their guardians to send me through images and updates. And so most of the time when it comes to basically any skin condition, whether it's an ingrown toenail, which we haven't covered, which I'm happy to talk about, whether it's an ingrown toenail or whether it's a healing wound or whether it's a fungal infection or whether it's a wart, or whether it's a sweating condition, just simply reviewing it over the phone, sending me a photo, is a, it, it achieves a number of things. It saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of hassle. It saves a lot of money. It also keeps my kids away from my phone because if they know that a patient's going to send me through a graphic image, then you know they're, they're not going to touch my phone. But it also keeps us, I think it keeps a certain level of cooperation and accountability as well to say, well, you know, I'm going to send you a photo once every week and a half to two weeks, depending on the condition. And let's, let's assess the progress and let's see where things are going. And so that by keeping the lines of communication open, we can nip problems in the bud and also have a, a good actual record of how things have progressed. Mm, yeah. And from a podiatrist point of view, how much do you detest high heels and ill-fitting shoes <laughs> well like i mentioned before the um the shod po uh, uh, western population um is responsible for a lot of conditions but high heels yeah they're, they're not the greatest i mean look they have their their place and their purpose and you know um, my wife wore them a lot more before we got married she's 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 significantly shorter than me so she does like to wear them on occasion but high heels are problematic in a skin sense because the ball of the foot is placed under enormous amount of pressure and an enormous amount of friction and that can really damage the tissues i've seen a number of of ladies over the years that have had chronic corns because they've, they've squeezed their feet into a pair of shoes that are too tight or the ball of their foot, the um, not just the dermal tissues, but the musculoskeletal tissues are permanently damaged with things like bunions and claw toes and hammer toes in a dermatological sense. And in a biomechanical musculoskeletal sense, high heels, very bad, <laughs> but save them for special occasions and they'll be absolutely fine. And we might see them a lot less post COVID as well, because we've all got very, very comfortable to our trackies and trainers. So it might just be a very happy time for podiatrists. Do shoes, are they the main culprit for ingrown toenails? It's a really good question. The main culprit for ingrown toenails is a combination of any of all of the above um, puberty because basically teenagers like to pick at their own stuff, but also tissues tend to accelerate, uh, have an accelerated growth over puberty, hyperhidrosis, which basically means excess sweating and bathroom surgery is often the most common cause of an ingrown toenail. So a person went a little bit too far or their um, beauty therapist or their nail salon or whoever cut their toenails, it can't even be what we call iatrogenic, which is practitioner induced, even podiatrist can cause an ingrown toenail but yeah there's generally it's one or all of the above 
but the treatments are relatively straightforward. Um, the most invasive form of procedure for an ingrown toenail, so we're sort of working with worst case scenario, is a little bit of local anesthetic and, and a tidy up down the side of the nail, which I tell my patients is the equivalent of a filling or a cavity. So a little bit of pain, a little bit of discomfort, you know, got to be careful for a day or two and otherwise pretty much back to normal. I mean, I've had patients that have gone to a wedding the night of an ingrown toenail procedure. So podiatry takes a, a very minimalist approach when it comes to the treatment of ingrown toenails because we've got some very specialized equipment. There's no actual incision. We don't actually cut any tissue. So we mentioned before the cuticle when a person has an ingrown toenail, we need to surgically remove that corner. What we do is we go in between the cuticle and the nail plate, and then we very gently lift that up. And sometimes we need to go all the way down to the root. And we lift that up and we remove the affected portion, apply a chemical for two to four minutes called phenol, and that's it. And it's really quick and straightforward and often curative for life. It's really, really effective. So mm, if, you've got, if you've got a chronic ingrown toenail, a chronically involuted or pincer nail, a curved nail, there's a number of really simple, quick, and relatively painless procedures that we can do that have permanent lasting results. Mm, and better than just dealing with it day on, day on, because Ab they are very, very uncomfortable. Absolutely. <laughs> Surgery is fun. Yeah. <laughs> Only for the podiatrist. Correct. <laughs> So, Joseph, are you anticipating that this time next year there is going to be a lot less warts and fungus because Australians aren't able to go on their, their you know, yearly holiday to their local um, camping ground and sharing bathrooms and bathroom floors with hundreds of thousands of other people? It's a really interesting question. I hope so. I hope so, for, for the sufferer's sake. Um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how people's dermatological conditions behave in the sort of post-COVID world. What's interesting is you mentioned, you know, people not wearing high heels. We, we've now got a term within podiatry circles related to COVID called crumpet foot. Have you, have, have you come across that? Not yet, but... Okay. So, <laughs> it basically means you're wearing your slippers too frequently and you develop a chronic skin condition where your skin is just too wet all the time. Occasionally it can lead to a bacterial skin condition called pitted keratolysis, which literally also looks like crumpets. Happy to show you photos afterwards, but yeah. As this is a podcast, no one can see my facial expression, <laughs> but someone that has literally lived in my Uggs for the last three months, I have taken them off as you just described that. Excellent. <laughs> um, and I guess the final point on that Oh, in regards to what we should be wearing on our feet, not just in terms of shoes, but in socks, is there a particular fabric that we should be looking at to ensure that we don't have macerated or very wet feet? It's a really great question. Um, in general, I, I think we should aim for eight hours a day. So a third of our day being completely free of shoes and socks. So sleeping, by the way, is counted within that eight hour period. Not that many of us get eight hours these days, but my personal preference is for natural fibers. So cotton, wool, et cetera, bamboo, they tend to be the most, offer the most ventilation. But what I've found is, particularly for individuals that are sweaty, the sock material is secondary to the frequency of change. So if you're an individual whose socks are completely saturated at the end of the day, your feet smell and they look crumpet-like, my advice to you would be when you're back in the real world and you know working a nine to five job, 
take with you a cut lunch and a pair of, and a change of socks. And I, and I advise that often to, to my sweaty t- uh, male teenage patients to take a, a change of socks. So changing your socks frequently is important. Try to have natural fibers and try to let your feet breathe for at least eight hours a day. Good, good advice. Well, I must say, Joseph, this has been absolutely fascinating. I've learned so much about the world of feet. Where can people find more about you and the work that you do? So you're more than welcome to log on to my website, which is www.healme. That's H-E-E-L-M-E.com.au. Original. Yes, thank you. That's my (laughs) wife. She's the marketing guru. So you can can check me out there. I've also got, uh, if, if there are health professionals listening, I've also got a, a podiatric dermatology interest group, which I call PDIG. Um, so feel free to check that out on Facebook. You're more than welcome to join that. We share cases. Um, I often have blog posts there. And um, yeah, otherwise the Skin Health Institute is another way to get in touch with me. I'm there monthly as part of um, the nail clinic where we manage chronic nail complaints. Referrals are required from a GP or from another dermatologist. So there's a team of us there and no matter how nasty you think your nail problem is, I guarantee you we've seen it all. So feel free to come on down and um, we'll be able to give you a hand with that. Well, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Well, 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 I must say for a conversation about feet, I think this has been the most humor and pun filled episode thus far, and I'm certainly not complaining. Joseph shared with us the fascinating world of skin concerns associated with our feet and the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, firstly, I had never considered a visit to the podiatrist being a necessary part of my annual health check, especially because I don't have any specific foot concerns. But since speaking with Joseph, I'm putting alongside my annual skin check with my foot check. Number two, you've probably seen laser clinics popping up offering treatments for toenail fungus. And while laser can certainly be instrumental in the treatment, it shouldn't be the only modality used. Joseph explained that a multifaceted approach is always recommended and most effective for long-term results. And number three, Joseph explains the importance of proper foot care and the result of a wet foot. And I think you can all agree that it's not something any of us want to imagine. Wash your feet as you would wash your hands while bathing. Dry thoroughly. Use my trick of a hairdryer, if you please, and allow your feet to roam free for eight hours a day. Kicking off those Uggs and socks may just be enough to prevent many common foot complaints. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another episode next week. Until then, be skin powered.